Just help us. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. If it's your first time here, we are finishing the book of Judges. Amen? Amen. Man, I'm ready to be done with the Judges. I wanted to preach it for 10 years. I know now why it took me that long to, to get there. And today is not a happy ending. Sorry. And we were in Judges, I think, 13, 12 weeks. We did Ruth for some good news in the middle and a couple offshoots here and there with Easter and Mother's Day and Father's Day. And you remember, the first week of Judges, I said, when we finish this, it'll be summer. And it's summer now. So I called it. All right. I'm able to read a calendar. Every book, every TV series, Netflix series, movie, they always have an ending, right? Everything has to come to an end. Some of them have great endings. I still maintain that Star Trek The Next Generation was one of the greatest final episodes I've ever seen. I still maintain that. Uh, The original Quantum Leap, still mad at the producers on that one. Judges, I don't know. I don't know. The the jury, no pun intended, is out. Come on. I didn't, that's not even my notes. I came up with that on the spot. The jury's out, but I know this, when you finish Judges today, it will not leave you wanting more of it. You will be done, but it will leave you wanting more of something. It will leave you wanting more of a savior. It'll leave you wanting more of Jesus. So we can compare it to other great endings, other movies and other series. And those, those typically leave you wanting more of that, if they're good. But this will actually leave you wanting something more. It'll leave you wanting a real judge that loves you and knows everything about you. That's what it's going to do. It'll leave you wanting an unbroken savior. We titled the series The Broken because everybody we meet is broken and, and everybody in here is broken. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're broken, I'm broken, we're broken. It should have been three things. Okay, we're either doing it or speaking in tongues. I don't know. But uh, we, we get to this last section. Some of you are like, I'm doing both. We get to this last section, chapter 17 through 21, and it's more of an appendix than it is another judge. The judges end with Samson. And some people even believe that these chapters don't take place chronologically in the book of Judges. And, and what do we always say? Eh, we don't care. We don't, who knows? Who knows? Doesn't matter. But I, think, I do think it's a cleanup, you know? It's, it's kind of like the author is saying, here is some awful stories that I just didn't know how to get in there, but I want you to know them. Thanks. Here's what happens. Bad things, right? Bad things happen when you try to find your salvation from anything, anyone other than Jesus. Bad things happen. What we saw over and over and over is that when you follow false gods, is it good or bad? Vote now. Even if it's your first week here, contextual clues should be like, I'll bet it's bad. I'll bet it's bad. (laughs) It is. It's bad. And so I've combined everything post-Samson into one sermon. Don't worry. We're not going to preach every word. Some of you are like, we got plans this afternoon. First service knows I have a second service. I know what you're doing, okay? But, uh, and I would calling it still broken. Still broken. Here's the big issue, and I think their issue is a lot like our issue right now. Maybe not everyone in the room, but I'm talking about our culture right now is broken, correct? Thank you. Our culture right now is, is maybe even like one person I read on this, and I really, really am appreciative of the people I got to read in Judges, people like J.D. Greer, Tim Keller, Skip Heitzig, just some incredible, incredible people that 
did deep dives on this, but this is really from one of them, and I don't remember who, but it's this. See if this sounds familiar in our culture. Some, some folks, they probably didn't say folks, that's me. Some folks believe in God, but they live or act like they don't. Does that hit anybody in the room? One person went this far, labels that group as this. They're like they're Christian atheists. Christian atheists. We believe in God, but practically speaking, and I'll show you this today, you live like an atheist. Now, what's an atheist? An atheist believes there is no God. You can't know God. Even if there's no God, right? We're just here. We're bubbles on the ocean, right? And so what we'll see is the stories today will, will actually seem very familiar to you. Because there are things we do in our culture from a thinking perspective, from a thinking perspective. So regardless, really, of what, like, cable news network you watch for hours every day, I think we can all agree that the world is becoming more violent, correct? You see that, right? No matter what you watch or what you allow to, to, you know, tell you what is going on. I think we can all see that the world is becoming less compassionate, or at least that's what's being pushed forward. Because that sells, you know, that sells. So when we move our way into Judges 17, what you're going to see is their culture from a thinking perspective was very much, yeah, we believe in God, but we act like and live like we don't. So that's what I kind of want to put on the microscope for you today. So it opens in chapter 17. This is post-Samson. It opens a story of a random guy named Micah. Everybody say Micah. See, that's one of the easier ones to say. So we want to take advantage of that. And Micah overhears his mom utter a curse because someone stole from her. And the reason that that's a big deal is it was Micah that did the stealing. And so he hears that and he feels bad and he says, hey, mom, it was me. I did that. I stole from you. Like you can have a whole sermon just why you shouldn't steal from your mama. But here we go. And, And he says, you know what? Take the money back and also take the curse back. You follow? And his mom says this. She restored, or it tells us this. She was in verse 3. She restored the 1,100 pieces of silver, which is a lot. That's a lot of money, even like today. 1,100 pieces of silver? Like, well, how big were the pieces? <laughs> like, real tiny, you know. And she said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. You see what's going on, right? Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when... He restored the money to his mother. His mother took 200 pieces of the silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod, which is kind of like a, a, you know, like a, like a breast, like a smock, if we want to super simplify that, really oversimplify it. And he had household gods and he ordained one of his sons who became his priest, everybody say, that's a bad idea. Thank you. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And, and let's, one more time, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what? Whatever they wanted. Making ephods, ordaining their kids, making gods. Yeah, we'll do that. Does anyone see the issue here with the man named Micah? What is he doing? What, okay, how about this? What's the second commandment? Does anybody have that one memorized? A little clearer. What is it? Don't make images or likenesses of God. Don't do it. That's what they're doing. 
They're making an image and a likeness of God, and then they're worshiping that. She's broken, just like everybody else in these stories. We're broken, just like everybody else in these stories. Micah is broken, just like everybody else in these stories. Well, how do you apply that? All right, how about you? Are you, are you hearing and hearing after months and months of hearing about these judges and how broken they are and how they're looking for other saviors and looking for other things to save them? Are you still broken? Or have you, like many people in the last six months, come to a realization here at Keystone Montgomeryville that God is God, he is real, and he loves you, and he has a plan for your life, and you give your life to him? Which, which side are you on? Because I got to tell you, after hearing about this, and I know it was thousands of years ago, but all I got to do is look out my window and see that it's going on right now, too. I'm like, how does one even stay broken? I'm not even talking to the people that aren't here, obviously. I'm talking to us. Like, how do we stay broken? How do we believe in God but live like we don't? Well, here's how we do it. You want to know how to do it? Tongue in cheek. You want to know how you can stay broken? Number one, you ready? Redefine God to fit your mold. You like that one? That's good, right? Redefine God to fit your mold. This is the theme of the whole book. It's idol worship. Doing whatever you want. And then get mad at God because it didn't work. That's silly, isn't it? Here's what I would say. If we were sitting together or maybe you're sitting with me and you're telling me this. Maybe I did it. You're telling, you know what, Mark? You redefined what God is and then you expected God to act the way you wanted him to act. Why are you mad at God? Remember Samson? Samson got mad at everybody. Whose fault was it? Samson's. Samson's fault. You, you're the one that did it. Why are you getting mad at God? You say, what's the big deal even? Maybe, maybe some of you are like, what's the big deal? Second commandment. I'm not doing that. What's the big deal? Have maybe a little Jesus statue at my house. Some of you are like, is he about to get weird? Is he? What's the big deal? Maybe I got a picture of, of God up in my house. Okay. All right. Let me tell you what the big deal is. The images obscure the glory of God. They obscure it. There's no image anywhere that could ever make God at any time. Never, ever are we able to capture with our ability to capture and hold what he is. And the moment I think I can, I'm saying this. I've limited God according to what I think his likeness is. Or at least what I perceive. I'm being serious. It's a big deal. In fact, the image that you make, even if it's not a little statue you have at your house or a little picture, some of you can get hooked up on that, and you're going to think that's what I'm talking about. It's not. But you have an idea of God that's built out of your ability to understand him. And the image you make is probably the picture of what you think. And so here's what we do. I've done this. I will magnify one of his attributes because it's the one I like the most. What might we magnify in that case? Is what? Is grace, right? We love that part. It's grace. I really love the graciousness of God. But you forget about the justness of God. I can't believe he would do that. Or we magnify his compassion and we celebrate that, but we distort other aspects of God. So probably you end up making a deified version of yourself. Because that's the parts you like. And when you do that, bad things happen. You believe in God, but you act like he's not, his other parts aren't real. And when idolatry rules the day, guess what you end up doing? Whatever you want. 
Whatever you want, because you've, you've redefined God to fit your mold. I will make God be whatever I want him to be. Can I just tell you, this is the primary problem with our culture today? Just locally. I don't mean like nationally. I don't mean like even Allentown. I mean like, like maybe in this room, we have redefined God to fit our mold. And so do you redefine God or do you submit to God? Because that's the choice that you have. We do what we want. We found that many, many times we could just justify it and make it work. Anybody? Can, okay, just be honest with me. Have you been able to justify things that make it work in your life? I'm not even talking about sin. You know, just, yeah, I can make it work. I can get through it. Now, it's easy to look at the part of the culture that's not following Jesus and get mad at them for doing it. Y'all ever get mad at the people out there that aren't following Jesus? Nobody? Really, you're just totally cool with what's going on. Wow, man, secularist in this room. Hmm. Okay, well, lucky for you, I prepared. Do you ever say this to the culture? Do you ever yell at your TV? Okay, thank you, thank you. Do you, ever, do you ever yell at your social media and say, I can't believe what I'm seeing? Do you ever get mad at Twitter? Like, I, I wouldn't know anything was going on without Twitter. I, I got to stop reading it, though, because it's, it's polluting my mind. Because I get so mad at people that aren't following Jesus. I get mad at them. I have anger for them. I say things like this. I can't believe how far we've fallen. I can't believe how we did that. But, but get this, then I remember these commandments of God are given to set us apart. They're actually given to me and you, us Jesus followers. That's who the commandments are for. Do I really expect a group of people that aren't following the same thing I'm following to follow the same thing I'm following? Why do I get so mad at them? Let me put this very practically to you. Some of you today will use Google Maps. Will anybody use Google Maps? Hopefully not to get back home. <laughs> but no, I know some of you that are so spatially challenged that you will. And that's fine. I get it. But now, when you're, when you're using Google Maps and you take a left turn and the car behind you doesn't take a left turn, do you get mad at that car behind you? You say, stupid idiot behind me didn't make a left. Can't they see we're following the Google Maps? Yeah, I'm, I'm 45, so we say the Google sometimes, all right? Why would you not get mad at them? Because they're not following the same thing you're following. So when you are in your neighborhood and you're taking your walk and you see the things that you hate and it breaks your heart, you should feel compassion, not hatred. They're not following the same thing you're following. They're being lied to and led astray. That's why when I can sit at camp with 330 people, 156 students, 75 kids, and I see some of them sitting in the corner not worshiping, do I go, I can't believe you're not worshiping a holy God. Here's what I got to think. Why would they? Why would they? Don't follow the same thing we follow. But God's grace and his power and his strength and his justness, I pray that they will. And we're going to do everything in our power to, to pave that road. Or do I just kind of take God and mold him into how I want? So some of us is this, believe it or not. This is for Jesus followers. I, we have a very evangelistic church. I love it. I love that people get saved. I love it. I love that we baptize. We, were, we don't have any today. It's like first time in a long time. But I think we got five next week. So don't worry. We're going to make up for it. But, but I'm just like, oh, my goodness. A lot of this is for the Jesus follower. So if we just want to get super real for a minute, because I'm convinced some of us might even be playing this on repeat in our head. Man, I'm so glad that I don't have any graven images in my house. I'm so glad that I worship God for who he is and, and I don't redefine him to make it work for me. I'm so glad that I submit to him. Amen. 
Amen. I'm glad you're here. But since you're here, you know, let's, let's stick a few of these under a microscope. You want to do a little heart inspection? I got to all the time. Do you, ever, do you ever say things like this? Well, my Jesus would never dot, dot, dot. Anybody ever say anything like that? Okay. All right. Well, maybe I'll get lucky on the next one. Well, the God I believe in, dot, dot, dot. How about this? Jesus never said. Okay, I got you on that one, didn't I? All right, good, good, good. The Jesus I grew up worshiping. Tim Keller said this, when we say, I can't believe in a God who would, whatever, we're often saying we really want a God, we don't, excuse me, we don't really want a God that is beyond our comprehension. When you define God and morality as you prefer it to be, you're not submitting to God at all. You're really just worshiping yourself. It might look like this. I'm going to give you some practical examples. I said we're going to get real. It might look like this. Let's say you know a couple who's dating. And I actually know a lot of couples who are dating. I meet with a lot of couples that are dating, want to get married. I think it's lovely. It's wonderful. It's great. And then through the course of some meetings, I ask hard questions like, are you guys doing married stuff? Do you guys know what that means? I have to read it. Okay. You like sleeping together? You sleeping together? You guys sleeping together? And even though God's word clearly states that sexual relationships are strictly reserved for married people, here's what I sometimes hear back. Oh, we prayed about that. We really love each other. We're engaged to be married. We're going to get married. We have a date on the calendar. I was like, well, you have a wedding on the calendar. You've justified that? You've reshaped God to fit your mold into what you want to do? In your own eyes? Well, no, wait, wait. God gave us real peace about that. Did he? Okay, great. But let's be honest. You're putting more weight. You're putting more weight on what seems right in your own eyes than what seems right in God's eyes. You remember we learned this way back last year. The weight of worship. Remember a Hebrew speaker would say this. I put weight on that which I worship. So how can I tell what I'm worshiping? Well, what do you put the most weight on? Do you put more weight on what other people think about you than what God thinks about you? Do you put more weight on what your eyes say is right or what God's word says is right? Where do you put the weight? Well, I can make God say anything. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. But that don't mean he said it. So how do I stay broken? Redefine God to fit your mold. How about this one? Use God, but don't worship God. Use God, but don't worship God. That's, I'm, t- I'm, I'm hitting heavy, man. I'm, I'm going to be gone. I'll be in India. This time next week, I'll be preaching in India. So I'm hitting heavy, and then I'm hitting out of town, okay? <laughs> this is to the church, my man. Which one? Do I use God, or do I worship God? Chapter 17, verse 7. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. Levites are what? What, kind, what, what line are they? Anybody know? Come on, Bible trivia. Priests. He's a priest. Micah knows this. And when he runs into him with his little graven images and his his silver things, he says, basically, because I'm paraphrasing a lot here, he says, cool, a priest. That's kind of what he says. Which, if I'm being honest, when I tell people I'm a pastor, 99% of the time, that is not the response I get. Never is that the response I get. I wrote down some things that I'm told. I get a stare. You're a pastor. But you're married. I get that a lot. So I'm like, yeah, we're allowed to be married. I get this. Oh, I should probably clean up my language a little bit around you. I don't care. 
Uh, how about this? Oh, I, um, uh, I, should, I should buy you lunch because I know pastors don't make a lot of money. <laughs> Heard that once, which I'm fine with, but that's a weird thing to say, you know? That's a weird thing to say. Can I just say, like, across the board, that's a weird thing to tell somebody, but keep doing it. But, but sometimes, sometimes I get the response that Micah gave. Sometimes I get this. Hey, hey, because he says, oh, cool, a priest. And then he says this, you can be the priest for my little statue. I now have a, a, a lucky charm to go with my lucky charm. Lucky charms now, right? And sometimes I'll get that. Oh, you're a pastor? That's awesome. Man, this plane won't go down now because you're probably on your way to a mission trip or something. So we know God's going to protect you. And I'm like, I'm actually on my way to Universal Studios. But that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. That'll be, I'll, I'm the reason we'll land. I'm the reason. No. But we kind of think that the Levite here is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to be your lucky charm. That's what he says initially. And then he's like, no, no, I'm going to pay you. And then we have a bad reputation for this. He's like, okay, cool. I'm your guy. I'm your guy. And by the time we get to verse 13, Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. I got one of the good ones. Yeah, man, we're going to do good. Look at that. I got a Keystone pastor at my birthday party, guys. It's one of the good ones. One of the good ones. Give me a break. Do you use God or do you worship God? Tim Keller again. Man, oh man, are we going to miss Tim Keller? Died a few few weeks, uh, months now. He said, true faith says it like this in this verse. God, I exist for you and you don't owe me anything. Religion, which is how Mike is, how can I get God to help me in my business? And then when that doesn't happen, religion says, God, I did those things for you. I did what you wanted. I gave my money here. I did the things. I did all that. I behaved. What happened? Why didn't my lucky charm work? True faith says, God, what do you want with my skill or my life? And and when I go through hard times, I'm going to believe you even more. So do you use God or do do you worship God? Micah made a critical error in assuming that God exists to serve him. And if you want to stay broken, you could do that too. That if I do this for God, he is now obligated to bless me. You guys ever have that type of thinking? Okay, can you at at least minimally see that type of thinking? Of course you can. Do you realize what you would need to do to God in order to get him down to the size that you could actually manipulate him? You'd have to completely remove all of his attributes. Completely. Uh, let me ask you this. What, what kind of God are you worshiping or seeking or needing? Have you taken the one true God and shrunken him down to a size that he can just fit your needs? So right after Micah gets his lucky priest to bless his lucky statue, another group comes along. And guess what they do? They outbid Micah. They say, we can pay that priest more. He must have been good at what he did. I don't know. Like, we could do that more. And they persuade the Levite to leave Micah and get, and they even steal the statue from him. They take it. And he runs after them and he starts shouting, and they start shouting back at him, what's the big deal, man? Why, why all the yelling? And here's Micah's response. And we really know that he's, he's hit rock bottom when he says, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? When you shrink God down to a size that you can control, you will always live in fear of losing him. 
when you have surrendered to the true God, to the one true God, and you follow the only true God, then you can stop worrying because he will never leave you. I've said it before, I'll say it again. His grip on me is tighter than my grip on him. You feel me? Let me tell you how this, was, this, this came into being. I'm just going I'm I'm to take more time than I need today, okay? Uh, I, I was, when I was a little boy, I remember my dad was carrying me across the sound. You know what a sound is? It's not the, ah, it's like this, just the, the ocean, right? And we were walking. He had me pretty tight. And all I wanted to do was get down out of his arms and swim, all right? But I'm like a little fella. I can't even swim yet, but I wanted to really bad. And then we get to the other side of the sound, and I find out that the whole time we're walking across, and I wanted down. I was being very disobedient. I wanted down. Give me down. Give me down. Let me, let me play in this water. The whole time, jellyfish are just banging at his legs the whole time. But that was my dad, and I, 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 I trusted him. If he'd let me down, guess what? I'd have been cooked. Some of you are fighting God so hard And you have made him so small that you actually think you know more than him. And in reality, he may be holding you and protecting you from something that is going to destroy you. But you fit him in your mold. You use him to bless you. But you don't believe him. By the time we get to Judges 19, a different Levite is about to completely lose it little content warning for you here real quick. 19 through 21 is very strange. It shows what people are capable of when they live a completely broken life. So content warning inbound. In those days, chapter 19, in those, day, in those days when there was no king of Israel, a certain Levite, remember, that's, that's, um, this is a different one than the last chapter. This is a different story was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Not a great start for the priest. Concubine is a, is a prostitute. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. So uh, he, he goes after her. He convinces her father to make her come back, which is crazy, and they climb on the donkey and they head back to the house. Here's what happens. So they passed on, verse 14, they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, which will be really important here in a few minutes. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah, and he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into the house to spend the night. That's pretty typical. You'd go into a city, you go into the square, maybe somebody will invite you in. The Bible actually says, finally, an old guy invited them in. You read it later, but that's kind of what it says. Verse 22. They settled in for the night, and as they were making their hearts merry, which means they were doing eating and doing some drinking probably, uh, behold, the men of the city, also known as worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. That doesn't mean they wanted to introduce themselves to him and be friends. It means they wanted to have sex with him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. You hear that language? Do what's right in your own eyes. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to them. So the man, man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her 
and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. When he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, behold, there was the concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. So I'm, I'm troubled by this for a lot of obvious reasons. Uh, it, really, it really bothers me to read that. And the reason I did was because we have to see how broken a society can be. That really happened. And it gets worse. It gets worse here in a moment. He doesn't seem to care a bit. We have reached the peak of brokenness. He isn't even bothered until this moment when he finds and sees that she is, she's died. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. It's unbelievable. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. So they're all pretty upset about it for, for the right reason. And then, then they hear his side of the story. And I'm going to summarize it because what he does is he tells them the story of how this came about. But he leaves out the part where he sent the woman out to be raped all night long. He doesn't include that part in his story. He doesn't include the abuse in his story. He, he doesn't include that they killed her to save himself. He doesn't include that in the story. Just that they did a wrong thing to us. You see, he's, he's, he's fitting God's call on his life into his mold. He's using God and his power now to do what he wants and what is right in his own eyes. And this provokes them into an outrage. And by the time we get to chapter 20, verse 11, it says, all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And they amassed this army of 400,000 soldiers to march against the Benjamites because they're the, they're the villain, right? And, and they demand surrender from the Benjamites. But the Benjamites don't want to surrender. And so a massive fight breaks out. And at first it looks like the Benjamites are going to take it. But then this happens in verse 26. All the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and they wept. And they sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening. Do you see how they are using God and not worshiping God? And they offered burnt offerings and, and peace offerings before the Lord. And, and believe it or not, in God's graciousness, if you skip down with me, and the Lord said, go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hands. So there's some justice coming. And they go back out to the fight, and honestly, they whoop them. The Bible says there was only 600 Benjamites left, almost total annihilation. And then those Benjamites go into hiding. And if you meet me in chapter 21, it says, now the, in verse 1, Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. None of us. Then a few months goes by. Temper's cool. People forget. And those guys hiding in the caves, they come down and they say, Listen, we've got a major problem. All of our children and all of our wives are dead. Can you help us out? We don't have anyone to marry. You guys want to help us out? And what you're about to see is one of the most weird things in the Bible. 
because they're about to justify all of their actions, but say that God told them to do it. And the people came to Bethel and they sat there till evening in verse 2 before God. And they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said, oh, Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Did you just hear me read that? God, how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. You went there and killed them. Well, I don't know. How did that happen? God, look what you did. Look what you did. So, so they come up with a plan. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. When we, when we were about to go to war, right? right was, was there any region that didn't come help us? That seems to be a real theme in Judges. Have you noticed that? Hey, we all went to war. Hey, this half went to war. Did anybody over there even call? And they're like, we had a lot of stuff going on ourselves, you know? Like, like we don't even have, like, air conditioning and stuff. So it's like, we're, we're dealing with some things. We're dealing with some things. We got Samson, you ripping lines apart over here. Like, maybe we're busy with that. No, no, no. Did anybody come help us? That seems to be a real thing. They come up with somebody. Yeah, man, they figured out no one came from Jabesh Gilead. All right, I got an idea. I got an idea. Here's what we're going to do, and God's going to bless it. The congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men, verse 10, over there. Said, go and strike them. Go and take them and get their women. Take them. This is what you're going to do. Every male, every woman, every one of them, bring them back. And they did that. And they brought back 400 wives, which is 200 short. So they're like, we got to come up with another plan. Got to come up with another plan. That one worked pretty good. We're 200 short. I don't know who was in charge of that, you know. Guys, you came up short. You, you did it too good. Darn it. Okay, we have another plan, they said. There's this place up in Shiloh, and every year they have this big dance. Everybody gets drunk, and the guys come out, and they claim a wife for themselves. I think right when them guys come out and they're all drunk, that'd be a good time to kill them and take the wives. And so that's what they did. They went up there, they laid in the bushes, they waited until everybody got really wasted, and then they, they, they pounced, and they brought back 200 more wives. And they did it all in prayer, God, give us that. Answer our prayer. We can make this work. And then the book of Judges just ends. In verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, 13 weeks how do you stay broken? Well, you can redefine God, fit your mold. You can use God, don't worship him. Last one, we're going to end here. You can do whatever you want to save yourself. Just do it. I mean, that's what this story is about to me. Just, just do whatever you want or whatever you need to do in order to save yourself. You do it. You get backed into a corner, not a problem. You can figure it out. Uh, you, you, need to, you need to commit some absolute atrocity. You can make that work. You can figure it out. You got a problem that can't be fixed? You'll come up with something. Uh, how about this? Need to take advantage of the week like he did? Like our Levite priest did there? You need to take advantage of the week in order to save yourself? Shouldn't be an issue. You will stay broken if you think that you can fix yourself. You can't. You can't. 
So if you want to stay broken or do you want to be made whole? Because here's the thing. All these things we saw today, in theory, in initial thought, probably seemed like a good idea. Oh, you need wives? We know where to go get those. We even got a God that'll bless it because we make it work. Need a savior? Not a problem. We'll figure it out. This is working. If I can just make more money, I'll be more secure. Uh-huh. And as awful a group of, ch- of chapters at 17 to 21 is, uh, this may be hard for you to believe in this moment, it's actually not the most awful chapter in the book, in the Bible. Do you know what the most awful chapter is? We, we, we see it as beautiful now, but the most awful chapter, and I'm telling you, there's one more descriptive and more incredibly strange than any other chapter in all the book, and it's the chapter where Jesus dies. It's the chapter where the same humanity that we're sharing space with takes a perfect, unbroken Savior and kills him. And he dies. It's the part where we see Jesus going to the darkest part of humanity and enduring that for us. It's the part where he takes broken people like me and you and he says, I'm going to make you whole, but it is going to cost him. It's the part where he shows me that I cannot redefine what he did to fit me. I have to just allow it to shape me. It's the part where he showed me that by worshiping him, I will get way more than I ever imagined. It's pretty dark, though. It's the part where he showed me, Mark or whoever, you can never save yourself. But he can. It's dark. So you have to ask yourself, do you want to stay broken or do you want to be made whole? You know, one of the things that kept coming up over and over and over in this book is there was no king. There was no king. You remember that? There was no king. Read it like three times today. There was no king. There was no king. In those days, there was no king. So the people did whatever they wanted was right in their own eyes. But can I tell you, we have a king. We have a king now. And I don't have to decide with my eyes what's right and wrong. The king has already decided that. And his name is Jesus. And the Bible says that if I put my faith, my hope, my trust, everything I have, I lay at King Jesus' feet and he will never go wrong with me. Do you believe that? The Bible says that if I take all my sin, all my brokenness, and maybe you have done atrocities that would make us blush, we'd be like, oh my gosh. Wow. But Jesus looks at that and says, I see a broken person that I know how to make whole because he's the king. There are many of you that God brought you here for this moment right now so you can meet the king. So why don't we talk to him? Let's close our eyes and, and just pray to him right now. You know you need forgiveness. You know you need more than just a fresh start today. Turn from your sin. Turn from your brokenness Stop trying to fit God into your pocket. Stop trying to mold him and shape him. Stop trying to make your morality his morality. And know that he's not inviting you to a list of rules. He's inviting you to a relationship that begins right now with him forgiving every sin you've ever committed. And he will make you brand new. If you know that's you right now, I'm going to ask you to pray this with me. You say, dear Jesus, you talk to the king. You don't have to make an appointment. You got one. Dear Jesus, you say, I know I'm a sinner. 
I know that you came in humility for me. You died on the cross. You rose from the grave. And today I receive your forgiveness for all my sin. Today you are my Savior. Today you are my Lord. And from this day forward, I will follow you. Your son Jesus' name, amen.